HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, all right. Guess what? It's Monday, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Get out your paper and pencil, because you're going to have to take notes. No. Just kidding. But I really do have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Helena Botmiller Avich. I hope I'm saying that right, um, who I noticed years ago because she wrote for uh, Food Policy, uh, no, so for Food Safety News for many years, like f- at least four or five years. And um, she's just a crackerjack reporter, and now she's working for Politico. She wrote a, an article a couple of months ago that I took note of. Uh, it's called The Great Nutrient Collapse. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we do that, uh, we have a few joys and sorrows to review here. Um, I noticed today in one of the many trade pubs or, you know, things that I read every day. Um, this might have been an environmental health news, but it may not have been. Um, in any case, I, I noted with some surprise, but not complete astonishment, that the uh, EPA has fined ExxonMobil $2.5 million for decades of pollution in the Gulf Coast. That's right, folks. $2.5 million for decades of pollution. There's something very nasty in the woodshed going on there. I mean, that is just so wrong. Um, But it kind of reminds me of Chris Christie giving a pass, uh, I think, also to, um, maybe it was also to Exxon, but in any case, they were supposed to collect some massive um, amount of money from one of these big energy companies, um, and he ended up settling for some paltry sum, no doubt because he got himself a nice big fat payoff. But, you know, who knows? I mean, I I could be slandering the good gov, um, but I hardly think so. Um, And then the other thing I wanted to bring to your attention before we move on to the interview um, is that Food Policy Action, which is one of my favorite organizations, um, it has an illustrious uh, board, including Tom Kalik, the celebrity chef uh, who has actually put his money where his mouth is and does a lot of work around um, food policy. Um, They uh, have just released their midterm report on the 115th Congress. And guess what? They suck. (laughs) I bet you didn't know that. (laughs) I know I just cracked myself up. Um, But there are some bright spots in their evaluation. Uh, For example... And it's sad that we have to do this, but there have been amendments address, uh, introduced to maintain basic protections for the Clean Water Act. <clears throat> it's so sad that we have to do that, but it's, it's nice that there are some members of Congress who actually have a conscience and do think about things like whether or not we're going to just roll back all the regulations on industry uh, and just pollute willy-nilly because, you know, it's it's all about the shareholders. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, or several other things, is Diane Feinstein uh, from California has introduced an act uh, that will um, assist agricultural workers in uh, finding um, immigration status more... Um, shall we say, more accessible. Um, she wants to c- create greater transparency in um, 
Uh, oh, and and other and in other news, Mike Lee. Sorry about that bad segue. Um, Mike Lee of Utah, believe it or not, a Republican, has um, introduced a bill that would uh, create greater transparency in checkoff programs in order to prevent anti-competitive activities. Now, checkoff programs, um, which I don't talk about very much, but which are a thing in all of our, you know, basically all of our livestock agricultural pursuits. And basically what happens is that the lobbying companies like um, like the North, uh, like the uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the American Meat Institute, the National Pork Producers Council, all those guys, they actually tithe off uh, a little bit of money from every single animal um, in order to create marketing programs to promote uh, the consumption of meat and dairy. And a lot of the farmers who are ob- obliged to participate in these programs don't like them um, because they don't really support <clears throat> smaller uh, producers or producers who are, say, grass-fed or organic or have some other sort of marketing niche that doesn't fit in with the national platform of these large companies like, uh, you know, Cargill and Tyson, et cetera. So there's been a lot of um, back and forth about that. So it's a good thing that uh, uh, Congressman Lee has actually gone to bat for some of the farmers in his home state. And perhaps this will give some relief to the farmers who don't actually want to participate in mainstream agriculture. And then another interesting uh, little piece of, um, uh, in, of legislation that's been introduced by Susan Davis and Alma Adams, Susan Davis from California, Alma Adams, I think, from South Carolina, um, and that is uh, uh, improving the uh, food assistance programs for low-income communities. Um, So those are good things. But the main point I want to make about food policy action is that you can go to their website, and you can check their scorecard. They score every single member of Congress, Senate and House, um, on how they have voted or whether they have voted for or against um, uh, various pieces of legislation and how much legislation is being introduced around food policy. And uh, sorry to say, it's been virtually non-existent. I think I have just read you the list of um, you know bills that have introduced that relate to food industry in general, and that's a pretty paltry number given that it's basically the the, the halfway mark for this Congress. Um, so check out the scorecard because it really makes a difference uh, to know how your representatives uh, vote, and then you can vote accordingly in the midterm elections in. Uh, 2018. And then the last thing I wanted to mention before we break here um, is that uh, the Executive Women in Agriculture Conference is uh, going to take place in Chicago. Unfortunately, I will not be able to go, but some of you listeners might want to if you don't know about it. Um, This is a really interesting conference where it's just women who work in agriculture and agriculture of every stripe, whether it's mainstream uh, industry-focused agriculture or whether it is uh, niche-producing uh, type farmers. Um, they all go to these things. I learned about it from one of the local farmers in my home state, Rhode Island, and um, she w- could not say enough good things about it. So if you're anywhere near Chicago between November 29th and December 1st, I urge you to check it out. So that does it for Joys and Sorrows. We're going to take a quick sponsor drop and we'll be right back with Hel- Helena botmiller Uh and we'll be talking about the great nutrient collapse. Bet you didn't know about that. <laughs> I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity, water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic, we're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. 
it's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're going to be talking about an article that I picked up in Politico a couple of months ago, uh, penned by the one and only Helena Buttmiller-Evich. Helena, am I saying that correctly? It's Helena Buttmiller-Evich, but you are certainly not the first person to get it wrong, so no worries. Helena, okay, gotcha. Um, and Buttmiller. Where yeah, is that from? Buttmiller-Evich. Yeah. So Bottomiller's German. So ah. my you'll remember from my food safety news days, Helena Bottomiller was my byline there. And yes. I was under that byline for four years and then I got married and luckily Evich was short. So I yes. added Evich. <laughs> and it's, that's Croatian. So now people are just very confused. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm glad I I finally I've at least got the Helena part right. And um I, I have to indulge myself in a little bit of fandom or fangirldom, I guess, um, by saying that I you know, you were just a terrific reporter for food safety news and uh, I always enjoyed reading your stuff, and I enjoy it even more now at Politico. Um, so that's a, that's an exciting jump for you. Much more Thank sort of you. up your oh, alley, I, I would that. think, too. Because you were, we think as journalists, our work just goes, you know, into the ether. So it's always good no. to hear from the corners <laughs> of the internet that's that's finding it useful. It's good. Yeah, no, very Thank useful. You. And I would think that this jump to Politico is is kind of much more up your alley. I always felt like you were um, very focused on sort of the politics of food as much as anything else, um, even when you were working at Food Safety News. So I'm glad you got that that sweet little spot there. Yeah, it's been great. They're really serious about covering it here. We have four food and ag reporters, which I think is more than just about any mainstream outlet, which is great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't think of anybody really. I mean, Des Moines Register, maybe. I mean, they still have Phil. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Don't they have, didn't they, they had a great reporter though, Phil Blash, I think his name was. Phil, Blasher? Phil Brasher. Yeah, Brasher. so he's at AgriPulse now. You know, oh, is they that... do great coverage, but I bet you they don't have four people dedicated to it. It's wow. It's tough. The newspaper... Yeah, you'd think in a farming state they would ha- want more, but you know, I guess pe- I guess there isn't the app. That's why I exist and you exist is yeah. to like get people yeah. more interested in where their food is coming from. So let me then read your bio since we've already. <laughs> Um, you are a senior food and agriculture reporter for Politico Pro. And then before joining Politico, as I mentioned, you spent four years reporting on food politics and policy at Food Safety News, where you covered Congress, the Food and Drug Administration, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, your work has also appeared in the Columbia Journalism Review and on NBC News. And here's my favorite part. Your reporting has taken you around the Louisiana coast during the Gulf oil spill, Arizona lettuce fields, no doubt during that big salmonella outbreak, um, North Carolina hog farm and the occasional presidential turkey pardoning. Did you get to see Obama pardon a turkey? I did, <laughs> on more than one occasion, and it is something to behold. It really is. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Those turkeys are very well-trained. They are? Seriously. Yes, they play really loud music for them for uh-huh. like weeks and weeks on end to get them used to loud oh. noise. It's, it's really a crazy process. Oh, how fascinating. See, well, we'll have to have another show devoted to that. Um, but let's start off just by talking a little bit about some of the issues that you are covering for Politico. Um, so people get a f- you know more of a sense of what's what your interests are and where they're sending you to report. Oh, so recently we've been really focused on all of the nominees uh, going to USDA. So Mm. it's been a very, very slow process, as I'm sure your listeners are somewhat following. Um, You know, it took months and months to get the agriculture secretary in place. He finally was in place in late April. And just for comparison, Vilsack was in place like the day after inauguration. So they've been behind from the start. Um, I think they only have two of their seven undersecretaries in place as of right now, which is extremely uh, rare, unheard of for 10 months in. Yeah. And then, of course, there was all this 
dust up over um, Sam Clovis, who yeah. was their nominee to be the chief USDA scientist. <laughs> um, and he didn't have a science background, um, which was kind of the first round of criticism. And then the second round of criticism came after all of these um, really inflammatory statements came out that people dug up from like 10 years ago on oh, race, yeah. on women, on so many other things. Um, and then the sort of nail uh, in the coffin, so to speak, last week was um, that his name has come up at, as part of this unfolding Russia investigation. So yes. um, my heart leapt at with least joy. Somewhat involved. <laughs> yeah. So he's no longer the nominee, but he still um, has a very senior uh, position at USDA. So that's oh really? So they didn't get how time. does he even have a position? At, so in other words, he's sort of minister without po- portfolio at USDA. They didn't. I mean, I didn't realize that he was he's actually the, on the payroll. I thought he was. Yeah, just he's up the for that liaison position. to the White House. So oh, he's basically, right. I think, kind of a senior advisor, and yeah. he, um, you know, he's been there since the very beginning. He was the head of uh, kind of the transition effort over there. So he's been um, very involved from the beginning. But yeah, he will not be an undersecretary. Mm. I'm I'm sure you saw that terrific article uh, by Michael Lewis. I mentioned it in the outline in Vanity Fair. Did you check that out? Yeah, I, I was so excited. Vanity Fair was covering uh, ag policy. <laughs> I know, so, yes, right? I did. I read it. From I thought it was unbelievable. Finish, yeah, but it was also a very good article because it really did explain sort of the the, the vast uh, portfolio, if you will, of the USDA and how many fingers uh, they, how many pies they have their fingers in. I mean, it's it's really astonishing, and it's such an important agency, and it is being so utterly and completely neglected, and. Um, well, anyway, well, the proof will yeah, be in the pudding. He, yeah, he got into some really, I think, important issues just about um, the awareness of what USDA does, even in the yeah. communities that are most served by USDA policy, particularly rural um, communities like, you know, rural development projects and um, right. loans and grants for different community projects and rural broadband. I mean, you can just, you could all day list things that, that USDA works on water quality. I mean, it just goes on and on. Yes. And so I thought it was uh, definitely a good uh, window into that. I'm sure a lot of uh, I learned a lot from people, it for sure. particularly, yeah, I did too. And, the, you know, particularly people who read Vanity Fair probably are not following ag policy. So I'm sure it reached a totally new audience, which is yes. cool. I hope that will bring us more uh, more readers in your case and more listeners in mine. <laughs> yeah. But I will, anyway, I will say I, have, I do have one um, criticism that I can't not share on that okay. piece. The, the headline, at least on one of it, one of the um, versions insinuated that USDA is like falling apart. Um, and I, while they are definitely not well staffed and they don't have their political people in place and, you know, you can debate how qualified some of the people are that have come in. Yeah. There are so many career staffers that go from administration to administration and they, you know, they know their stuff. They sure. are very professional, super well-qualified. So I, I hope no one reads that thinking like USD is careening off into the, you know, off a cliff. Like it, it is the very much running, functioning, you know, food stamps are being administered, loans are going out. Like it's, it's yeah. perhaps not as dire as the headline suggests at least. So right. well, I just have to say that. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's a valid criticism. I mean, I think it's it's very unfair to characterize it as an agency that has no power at this point, because um, like all the agencies in this government, uh, there are enough just you know the skeleton staff necessary to keep it sort of chugging along, even if it's not uh, breaking any new ground. And I guess that's what's happening mm-hmm. there. And, right. And in right. So they many can't the really others. make policy, but they right. they definitely have people in place to keep the trains running. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, let's talk a bit about uh, the great nutrient collapse, because what what that's kind of an it's a bit of an obscure um, topic, I would say. And I, I, I you know, so I, obscure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wonder how I felt the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wondered what where, what you drew your attention to it, because obviously it's a very significant uh, topic. And uh, that's why I wanted to pick up on it. Um, but what what caught your eye about it? How did you first learn about this? So it was a little bit strange because usually I have sort of like a list of stories that I'm dying to do and don't have time. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out when to get time. And this story basically came about the exact opposite way where um, an editor for, we have this section of political called the agenda. And it's kind of like a online, more magazine format policy focused section of the site. And they, they tend to, they tend to publish in, 
topics. So like the future of healthcare or obesity or, you know, the uh, Internet of Things or some sort of topic, and then they publish these editions of them. Right. And one of the editors said, oh, we're going to do this um, edition on planetary health and sort of like looking at kind of the climate, um, kind of climate science and its connection to like human health and public health and like Apparently, there's this emerging field trying to frame those issues together. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He's like, there must be a good food story. You know, do some reading and kind of get back to me. And so I started reading um, the recent literature on planetary health, which I had never heard of. And I found some very recent papers that had been published on um, declining nutrient content and rising CO2. And I, I think I actually wrote WTF in the margin of this paper over <laughs> right. and over. I thought, how has no one ever brought this up? You know, I've covered food and ag for years. Um, you know, you hear about climate uh, concerns. You hear about, you know, we're worried about yield. We're worried about the corn belt moving. We're worried about sure. temperature. We're worried about X or Y or water. I mean, you it's not like we don't hear anything about climate, but I had never even considered that CO2 or any of the trends that we're seeing would be impacting nutrient levels. Like I just, I had never heard of that. And I just became fixated on like, why has no one ever brought this up to me? Or why Hmm. is there no conversation around it? So then I really started digging and went down the rabbit hole of like, you know, decades of research and a lack of research and just sort of why this question of why um, it's, it's not, there isn't more research on it and there isn't more discussion about it. Um, and yeah, I really went down the rabbit hole and it felt very obscure and I'm shocked at how well this story is one of the most read stories on Politico for the year. No kidding. It well, congrats for you. That's absolutely great. crazy. And yeah. I was blown away. I did not expect that. I, you know, I expected people would read it and that it would do fine or do well, but yeah, yeah it really struck a chord with people. So. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it's about time. I mean, really, we're all so passive, myself included. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I guess the events of this weekend, you know, once again, you know, the body count, like my brother woke up this morning, you know, singing hymns, you know, oh yeah, I'm polishing up my thoughts and prayers for another massacre, you know, like, I mean, it's just, you just feel kind of, you know, overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I do. I, I think, yeah, I think whenever you look at these big issues, there, there's a real, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed and also like, you know, what else is going on in the world that we're not looking at or well, that, right. you know, um, sure. I mean, I just definitely had that feeling. And you know, I, I just to be perfectly frank, I don't really spend very much time thinking about climate issues. I just don't, mm-hmm. even though I cover agriculture, there's so many other things going on. You know, it's not something the farm groups really focus on. I mean, in right. fact, they try to kind of avoid talking about it because it's, um, polarizing among some of their members. And right. um, it's not something I think about a lot, but really diving into this story, um, I find myself thinking about it a little bit more, for sure. Yeah. I, well, we'll come back to that story about uh, how polarizing it is to think about climate change within the agricultural community, because that's that's a story in and of itself. Um, yeah. But I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about, like, what... So so you discovered, in through all this reading, that plants uh, are degrading nutritionally. and There's, like, a, a, a significant percentage drop in sort of protein levels and minerals and so on. Um, can you talk, you know, just describe that a little bit more? Yeah, so... So the one thing that we can't debate in the whole climate uh, cluster of of just screaming, (laughs) uh, there's one thing you can't debate, and it's measurable, like it is measurable that the concentration of carbon dioxide is increasing in the atmosphere. It's like we know that. That is established. And basically... If you if you look at it over time, I think it was somewhere around 280 parts per million before the Industrial Revolution. Last year, we just crossed over. Um, in the last year, we've crossed over 400 parts per million, right. um, and scientists predict we'll be maybe more like 550 parts per million in um, in 50 years or in a few decades. So, while we can debate, folks can debate if they want what's driving it, what's causing it. What you know, all of that doesn't matter in this debate at all because we know that carbon dioxide is increasing. So um, there is a fair amount of plant research that simulates high CO2 
and looks at what happens to the plants. And so basically what they do is they create if an atmosphere where they elevate the CO2 to where we think it's going to be in a few decades. Mm-hmm. And in those experiments, um, you know, you start to see a drop in, in protein, in mm-hmm. iron, um, in sort of these things that we rely on but don't really have to think about, especially in the U.S. where we have like a really varied diet, we have plenty of meat, you know, we, we don't really right. think about like, oh, you know, what's my protein or iron level? Um, but these become very important questions uh, when you're looking at uh, developing countries that rely very heavily on rice. Right. Um, so basically what I found is that there is a fair amount of plant physiology research that is well documented in, in showing that rising CO2 decre- you know, drops um, some of these nutrients by maybe 6-8% um, at these elevated CO2 levels. Uh, but what almost no one had done until recently was ask, what does that mean for people? What does that mean for human health? Right. Like, should we be modeling, you know, what, is that, what does that look like over over these especially staple crops like wheat and rice that are very important for billions of people. Right. Um, and literally the first uh, studies that have modeled out, like what would be the public health impact of a loss or a drop in iron or a drop in protein, those happened in, within the last year. I mean, that's kind of how new this is. It really oh, wow. hasn't been um, looked at for very long. Because that, that was my question. It was like, has there been uh, a human health impact study done? And if so, what were the results of that? Like, are they, I mean, so in the study that you're referring to or studies that you're referring to that have been done in the last year, ha- have they been able to measure an impact on human health or is that just still in the modeling stage? It's in, it's in modeling because, um, what, what, so one of the big challenges with this trend is that we actually do take, um, we, we, we kind of measure the nutrient levels of food over time, like mm. apples. Like we can tell you how much vitamin C they've had over the last 50 years or whatever. Um, but we don't grow the same apples today that we grew 50 years ago. So comparing the apples across time isn't, it's not just, just not a very relevant right. way to measure trends. I understand how so that works. So because of all those variables, um, it, it's just looking at nutrition, nutrients over time is just not something that, that we do. Well, um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go so, ahead. Um, did you want to continue that or, or I, I'm, I'm well, ready to ask I you Well, I think that's one of the things that's question. difficult about this is so much of like what we know, what we can measure in science is modeling and controlling right. and looking at plants like in experiments. So we're modeling into the future, but we know that CO2 has gone up by 30, 40% in the last, um, you know, 100 years. So <laughs> it, it, there are a lot of questions that I wish scientists had already <laughs> answered when I was doing this. I'll yeah. put it that way. Well, because you, it would have made the story a lot easier. You're like, wait, how do we not know the answer to this? You know? <laughs> I, I kept saying I, that. How do we not know the answer to yeah, that? Yeah, right. You know? Why hasn't anybody looked at this? Well, you made the point also in the story, and, and this was uh, you know very curious to me, that the new hybrids, um, you know, for instance, the various varieties of apples or the various new varieties of wheat or rice or some of the other staples, you know, they tend to aim towards a higher yield per acre um, or a faster growth cycle. And I was wondering if that, I mean, you said that that has an, igni- an impact on nutrient density. So h- how in a way do they figure out what is the chicken and what is the egg? Is it, you know what I mean? Like, because you have two, I don't think we two have. things yeah, going concurrently. Yeah, I don't think we have separated out which yeah. factor is causing which drop right. because you're exactly right. It, so when you um, select plants for yield, um, you are also inadvertently, in most cases, also selecting plants for um, fewer of certain nutrients, depending on what the plant is. Just because, because just the there's, way plant, right. there's always you know, a they're, genetic They're, they're dedicating their, their, um, their energy, if you will, to being bigger. Right. not more nutrient dense. So this is something that's well documented in a number of different plants. Just yield is inversely related with certain nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you have that happening at the same time we're changing all of our plants. At the same time, no one's really thinking about you know, nutrients over time. Right. Um, at the same time, CO2 is going up. At the same time, we're also degrading soil in many places. And that is Very one thing true. that 
I've gotten so many emails about soil. That is definitely something that I wish I had gotten more into or more into in the story um, because that's another factor. And yes. there, you know, I think what I found interesting about this angle is you don't hear about this factor. You do hear somewhat about the other factors. Yes, that's right. But that, I mean, that seems to be a big trend that's been building over the last couple of years of uh, identifying and addressing uh, the impact of monocropping on soil health and the fact that, you know, that also has an impact um, on nutrient density, but, you know, on pretty much everything else that's related to agriculture. That like, suddenly they're sort of realizing, oh my God, we can't just keep you know, doing the same thing that we've been doing for the last 45 years um, because now the soil is simply not staying, it's not staying in place and it's not, uh, it's not yielding the same amount of crop even. Like crop yields are, are diminishing, if I'm not mistaken, where they're not really taking good care or they have to add that much more agricultural chemical inputs to make the same yield. Yeah, I think stepping back, like going back to the whole yield versus nutritional profile issue. If you think about how farmers are incentivized, um, Mm -hmm. it's like almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely around yield, right? Yes. You're, you're getting by weight or volume, you know, um, the you know, whether or not your strawberries are super high in vitamin C or, um, you know, have more phytonutrients than all the rest, that's just not part of our, that's not what we incentivize for, what we value or sort of um, standardize. So I think maybe that's kind of part of it is that if you look at like what our system sort of um, uh, creates incentives around, it's not around nutrients. Well, yeah, I mean, that was one of the questions I wanted to address with you because I think, um, I think it's interesting that the plant scientists who have been breeding all these new varieties for pest resistance or fast growth or whatever uh, are so indifferent to uh, nutrient losses um, that have accompanied their, their fabulous new varietals. And I, you know, it says something about the seed companies who are producing these um, in terms of how they, how they see uh, their commitment to or, you know, feeding the world. And, you know, you hear a lot about feeding the world from all of these agro companies. And yet what they are slowly doing is making it harder and harder to feel, feed the world, if you know what I mean. I mean, can you comment on that? I mean, like, what, what does it say about these companies? Well, I think it's even bigger than, than just the companies. I think it's, it's just the whole business model around Ag, and I mean, in mm-hmm. some ways, it makes sense. Like we're folk, we're just trying to figure out how to feed all the billions of people who need to be fed in a way that's like affordable and accessible. And you know, in many places, it's still not like they haven't even hit that benchmark, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we're focused on, and even in the development world, they've been very focused on quantity, just like enough calories. We need enough calories. And actually, in the past couple of years, the development community, like the food aid community has been talking a lot more about nutrition and thinking about, oh, well, maybe we should be a little more focused on um, things that ha- are high in vitamin A or high in um, these other nutrients that that we know are problems for stunting or that we know are um, really setting uh, communities back or causing problems. And so thinking about it more holistically. So I do hear that happening more like in that community, uh-huh. not just focusing on, you know, calories. Um, but in general, I think it, it just hasn't, I think because we have such bounty, like we have such a variety in this country, we just don't need to be thinking about, uh, about these tweaks or changes in nutrients. And one of my favorite little anecdotes that I came across um, when researching this was, I can, and I'm totally going to forget the woman's name and I feel terrible. She's an author and she wrote a book about wild food. Mm-hmm. And she did a, um, an interview in the New York Times, like, I don't know, it was maybe a decade ago. And she said, you know, I've talked to pear breeders who spend, spent their whole career breeding pears <laughs> and never once thought about nutrition. It wasn't part of any, it just was no part of their work or their conversation. Interesting. And, and I, I, I just think about that, like, well, you know, they were incentivized to make 
probably bigger pairs or pairs that were more shippable right. or, you know, pairs that would stay the right color that consumers wanted for longer or whatever it was, sure. you know, they were asked to kind of focus on these things that they thought consumers uh, were, were focused on, right? It's like the keep fruit pretty, like the opposite right. of the ugly fruit uh, right, campaign right. that we have now. Yeah, yeah. Uniformity above all. Yeah. Uniformity, huge. Yeah. Yeah, that is really a big deal. So one of the things that you discovered was that there was a higher carbohydrate and sugar load. Is that, is that, am I, did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, so as a result, basically so, the ratio of protein to carbohydrates changes. Right. So it's, it's not like all your food's bad to eat now. It's well, that it's subtly <laughs> shifting. I did get a lot of emails, people being like, what is happening? Is my salad making me fat? Yes, that was and, my question. Is salad going to make me fat? <laughs> I mean, I think all high yielding produce and all, you know, there and under high CO2, you are um, seeing a shifted ratio where protein and these other minerals tends to go down and carbohydrate content tends to go up. Yeah. Um, so I think that's more an interesting thing. Like no one has modeled that. Like what does that subtle shift mean for us? Yeah. What, is, what does that mean for our diet? So we just have not looked at that. Um, I thought that was a fascinating kind of, aspect of the research that you did. Right. And there is some hypothesizing. There's some hypothesizing that that could be exacerbating the obesity epidemic, but mm-hmm. it has just not been, um, it has not been studied. Yeah. So I hesitate to, you know, go, go down that path. I would, no, I, sure. I think it would be great if, um, if a researcher, a group of researchers would sort of dig into that. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is the primary subject of your piece, Iraqi Loladze. Loladze, yes. He found it very difficult. Now, granted, he was starting his research in the 90s, but he found it very difficult to interest even other scientists in his hypotheses and practically impossible to get grants to further investigate. Do you think that, you know, now that sort of his work and then some other people, has that, has that ball started rolling? Do you think that money is going to start uh, flowing towards uh, these studies? Or do you think that's not <clears throat> likely to happen just because it's, it sounds, it's hard to interest, a, you know, the, the consumer community in this as much as, you know what I mean, is that, that would reward them sort of financially for doing that kind of research? Well, I can tell you, Rockley has, um, gotten, like I have, overwhelming number of emails and no phone kidding. calls and tweets and so on just about um, about the story and specifically about his researchers. I mean, I've gotten emails from scientists all over the world trying to find Rockley. So no I know kidding. he is having a lot of conversations around this topic. Uh-huh. Um, I checked in with him this morning, actually. He still does not have funding to do his own research, but um, he's in touch with researchers all over and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he um, ultimately does get funding. Um, I, I have to note that the, um, the Planetary Health Institute, which mm-hmm. is run out of Harvard, is, um, is working on, on um, look, answering some more of these questions, and they definitely have funding. And the USDA researcher that I uh, also profiled in the story is working with some researchers across the uh, globe looking at a very large study of rice. Uh-huh. Um, and high CO2, and I think that research should be coming out um, in the coming months. So that will be very interesting. Cause that I think will be. more of a focus on rice might start to get people's attention because rice is such a hugely important um, staple for literally billions of people, yes, and especially literally. in um, Asia and, I mean, just looking at, like, Bangladesh, for example, I, I want to say it's, like, 70% of their calories come Oof. from rice. So you're talking about a really vulnerable population if there's any change in the nutrition, nutritional quality of rice. Yeah, and the kind of civil unrest that that will lead to. I mean, that's what I, I project forward. Like, you know, people start, they have the same amount of rice, but they're becoming, you know, uh, nutritionally compromised, and you see more and more disease cropping up as a result of that. And then, you know, that's going to lead to in, uh, instability and civil unrest. And, you know, and how do you, how do you turn off the spigot on that once you, you know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> that's going to be a really big problem. I also wanted to ask you about, um, because I'm, you know, I'm all about meat. <laughs> that's my subject. Um, 
I wondered if you had come across any investigation into whether the loss of nutrients in grass and grains has had an impact on the nutritional content of meat. I didn't come across anything specific to that, but I did have some, I got some really interesting responses from uh, cattle ranchers. Uh Um, Got emails from all over the country saying, you know, I think you might be onto something here. Like, really? Anything, anything, anything that changes the quality of grass is is going to impact. Um, it's going to impact how you raise cattle. Absolutely. And I, someone sent me this this um, paper from like the '90s from um, Kansas State University, and it did look at like how elevated CO2 would um, reduce the quality, nutritional quality of grass and like what that would mean for ruminants. And um, I just pulled it up because I was trying to remember exactly what the conclusions of it were. And it, it has this line at the end of it. This is Kansas State University. This is an uh-huh. ag school. This yeah, is yeah. Not, One know, of the big ones, not some ones pie too. in the sky, a liberal right. nonsense, if you will. This right. is, it says, a future high CO2 world seems destined to reduce individual animal performance. That was kind of their conclusion because you, you're reducing the protein um, content in yeah. many of the plants that, that these ruminants rely on. And so um, I didn't come across a ton of um, research on that, but kind of in, in researching this, I started to realize that we probably know a lot more about the intersection between plants and animal health than we do plants and human health hmm. because so much of raising um, animals is finding efficiency, finding right. that feed efficiency, right. you know, health. There's just like a lot more monitoring and data collection, I think. Oh, definitely. Is that weird? Like I, I kind no, of got not that weird. Sense. That's a very important part of totally it. totally on point, but I, I, based on, I got more responses from cattle ranchers than I did from nutritionists. That's, I mean, that's fascinating in and of itself, but it, it makes total sense to me because, I mean, the whole thing about industrial livestock agriculture is, as you say, is how to improve that uh, feed-to-muscle ratio. And right. you do that and they, through and they, nutrition. They supplement. I mean, they change the food, um, the, the levels of nutrients in that. I mean, they have it down to a science. Absolutely. So, so it's, it's not that, you know the animals that we're eating are just relying on like wild, you know, they're getting fed a very specific diet that has very specific levels of protein and other nutrients. And oh, so yeah. um, I, I, I don't know that we would see like, you know, any effect because they're very closely monitoring the nutrition that they're giving those animals. They are, but um, all cattle start out on grass. I mean, they all start out on a pasture. Yeah. Um, and those critical first five, six months, um, I could see how that would have a really serious impact on the finish of a cow. Um, you know what I mean? Like, like how much you would have to ramp up uh, the supplements in order to make the cow grow to optimum levels at the optimum speed. Uh, well, that's as, a good question. As, I you know, if, as nutrient levels diminish in grass. I wonder if you could track performance over decades on the same pasture, but mm. probably not because uh, you would have different genetics. I don't know. I really don't. But that's a really interesting question. It is. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some... I'll question a few of my cattle people about that and see if they have any yeah. knowledge of that. And if I find something out, I'll send it along to you. Um, yeah, we're, we're gonna. <laughs> yeah, because I want you to keep on this. <laughs> um, let's, yeah, let's, a lot of people are, are hounding me to write more, and I'm like, I don't know if I can go back down that rabbit hole, but I'll, yeah. I'll think about it. Well, maybe no. there's somebody else you want to do it with or, you know, or somebody else yeah, who's no, you know, equally, kind of equally um, accomplished as you are, my dear. Um, so, but let's let's look at some broader trends. Like, what as as an agricultural reporter, uh, what do you see as the big trends that are emerging in agriculture? Uh, you know, like how we grow things, whether or not uh, you know the whole monocropping system is starting to look less and less plausible uh, in the coming years. How are, are are people paying more attention to water quality and water issues, water availability, for example? Um, what what do you see as the big trends? as you look across the agricultural spectrum? Well, I, in being in Washington, I'm really kind of hyper-focused on the policy mm-hmm. uh, I'd be interested in that. I think the most interesting thing right now is 
trying to map out how much of the Obama food and ag agenda um, ends up lasting through this administration. And I actually think more than people think is going to um, uh, survive, if you will, or or continue on. And, I mean, we're seeing evidence of that. Uh, Farm to school remains a very big thing that USDA works on. Uh, They still work on food hubs. They still... You know, they kept most of the school nutrition um, reforms that Michelle Obama championed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's one of the interesting things to watch because we, for the uh, under the last administration, there was just so much focus on talking about food and ag and the garden and the South Lawn, which, oh, by the way, that's also staying. Melania yeah. said she was going to keep that's it. Amazing. So, you know, the, it's, a sim, it's a symbolic thing. Right. But, but um, I think there's a lot of people who are very excited to that stay. Um, but more generally, I think because we're under a Republican administration that is definitely not interested in being as activist on the regulatory front, right? I think the natural shift to look at more is just all of the private sector trends and where private sector trends like pick up yeah. kind of in response. So I think you'll be seeing more... Um, more corporate commitments to work on things like water quality or reducing, uh, you know, nutrient runoff or um, working on soil health, things like that. I think you'll see more of a focus just on trying to work with the private sector if they know that they're not going to get, you know, reforms or any real action on the Hill or in the farm bill. I think this farm bill will be difficult, but I don't know that there's going to be a ton of new policy in the farm bill. If that makes yeah, sense. I'm, I'm guessing not, not just because of who is in charge. Yeah. These are not people who are, you know, forward thinking or progressive in any way. So, um, but you know, they're trying the to protect what they have. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think like, you know, the, I know the poultry industry is, is once again, pushing very, very hard to increase their chain speed, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that obviously has major consequences in terms of food safety, as well as, you know, worker safety. Uh, as well as animal welfare, so that's uh, that. That would be something that I could see like happening. That's definitely somewhere to watch. Oh my gosh, yeah. I I really would not want to go back to having to cover that. That that covering that at Food Safety News was mm, kind of brutal, to be frank, because you either think that is like that. Well, increasing line speeds in addition to the revamped poultry inspection they were going to do. So that was kind of like the carrot and the stick, right? So like they wanted to do revamped poultry inspection and increasing line speeds was a way to sort of entice um, the industry to sort of go along with that. But But wasn't the increasing Looking at line speeds in and of itself is sort of a different thing. But when we were looking at that, people were saying either – this is the worst thing that could ever happen, and it's going to result in, like, you know, viscera in your chicken right. at the grocery store. Or it was the USDA going, this is going to be good for food safety. It was like there was no middle ground. It, was, it kind of drove me nuts because people had just decamped on their sides. And I think if you see the Trump administration try to do a line speed increase, I think it would be like a five alarm fire for advocacy groups. And I think they would yeah. go to the mat on that. I, I think it would be a huge fight. Oh, if God, they, I hope if so. If they decided to go forward with that. <laughs> I really hope so. Um, and what about just, we have like one more minute, but what about the Food Safety Modernization Act? I know that was signed into law by Congress, but it certainly has been slow to be implemented and is certainly not fully implemented as of now. Um, what do you what do you yeah. think are the prospects for that particular piece of legislation? It's, it's been slow, um, for sure. Oh my gosh, that that was like the first thing. It was I 2011, I think it was signed. Yeah, um, it's been slow to be implemented for sure. There's still big concerns about how it's funded. Like, is there really enough inspection capacity to sort of back it up, mm-hmm. uh, especially abroad? I mean, I, we're we're now up to the point where we're you know at least checking in on U.S. manufacturers periodically, um, but overseas is just a completely different ballgame. I mean, yeah. we do not have the inspection capacity. So I could see a time where U.S. producers start to express more frustration about that, mm-hmm. um, just about the sort of lopsided nature of, like, oversight. Um, but I actually...
actually think for the most part, FISMA will continue forward kind of as is. There, there are going to be some compromises made on water mm. standards. There was a ton of backlash from the ag community on oh, yeah. their original water quality standards. So that's basically trying to keep, you know, E. coli out of the water that they use for irrigation. Right. And it ends up being a lot more complicated than people think because there's like open air irrigation. There's people who get their water, you know, in the ground. There's, yeah. there's so many different ways that farmers get and use water and figuring out how to measure water quality. Um, in a way that didn't drive farmers totally insane and out of business. It's like, it's a tall order, actually. And so yeah. um, I think there's going to be some compromises on stuff like that. Mm. Uh, FDA has already indicated that. But I think for the most part, FISMA is going to continue going forward. Well, I, I hope from your lips, my dear. Um, and with I mean, that, we'll, I s- we'll see. I can make <laughs> predictions, but that's, that's just my what I see happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're you've got your finger on the pulse, doll. I mean, you're you're the one who's in the thick of it there. So, um, and with that, let us take this moment now to shamelessly promote yourself. Um, <laughs> I'm oh, assuming okay. you have so, a website. Um, everyone who listens should subscribe to Morning Agriculture if they don't already. You just Google Morning Agriculture. It's the first thing that comes up. You can sign up for our free daily emails, the rundown of food and ag policy mm, for the day. That's right. Um, you can also follow Morning Ag on Twitter at morning underscore ag. You can also follow me on Twitter at H Bottomiller, so H B O T T E M I L L E R. Yep. Uh, I I'm active on Twitter. Um, you should follow the whole team. Uh, our whole Morning Ag team here is great. So I'd subscribe to the newsletter and kind of get to know the reporters and follow us all on Twitter. Well, thank you very much. And thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you'll come back another time. I want to keep, uh, I, I loved having you on. You're a great guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, fun. this will be the beginning of a beautiful new partnership. <laughs> <laughs> You're my finger on the pulse of DC. So thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks so much to my sponsor, the incredible Bob's Red Mill. Let's hear it for Bob's Red Mill. Three cheers. Buy their products everywhere you see them. They're really terrific and a cause to be supported. And frankly, without them, we probably wouldn't still be broadcasting. So uh, big thanks to Bob's Red Mill and thanks to you and Politico for doing all the work that you guys do. And I'll see you next week, folks. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.